Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here with a guest that we've had on before. Uh, in fact, one, one of the best guests we've had on before, uh, Dr. Katie Butler, who is a trauma and critical care surgeon uh, who has recently left practice, don't know if that'll be temporarily or permanently, uh, f- specifically for the purpose of homeschooling her children, but she's written two terrific books. We had her on previously when, when her book called Between, Between Life and Death, which was a sort of the, the journey, a physician's journey down, down the road of the end of life with her patients. Her newest book is called Glimmers of Grace, a Doctor's Reflection on Faith, Suffering, and the Goodness of God. And it, you've, Katie, you've knocked it out of the park again uh, with this book. Uh, there's so many compelling stories about how you saw the, the grace and the goodness and the love of God amidst a, a pretty tough medical practice that you've had being a, a critical care surgeon. So thanks so much for coming on with us. We so appreciate what, what, you, what you're writing uh, and how you are bringing your experience as a physician to bear on the the life issues that all you know that all of us eventually will deal with. Oh, Scott and Wright and uh, Sean, just thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy and a privilege to be here. So, given you know, you spent a lot of years as a as a critical care trauma surgeon. Needless to say, a super demanding field that uh, I think has has probably left casualties along the way. Uh, but if it would be helpful for our listeners to describe how, in sort of in your early years of practice, how your work as a trauma surgeon affected your soul uh, and sort of shaped the person you became. Yeah, well, it's interesting because if you look at my experiences in medicine from the standpoint of a career, it's been an arc from a lot of sin and ugliness and despair through redemption by God's grace. Um, I I should preface and say that I was not a believer until I was 30. Uh, I grew up in a nominal Christian household where Santa Claus featured at center stage at Christmas, and we didn't talk much about Jesus. I thought being a Christian was synonymous with being a good person. Uh, But I Clearly, as I think we all intrinsically do, whether or not we choose to acknowledge it, I knew what sin was, and I knew that I was broken. Uh, And medicine for me, I went into it because I I genuinely wanted to help people, but there was also, to be perfectly candid, a, a sense of idolatry in it for me too, thinking that if I was to devote my time and my life to trying to help others who were sick and injured, that that meant I could earn my right to exist. And that all the ways in which I was fallen and broken and not good enough, I could make up for it somehow. But the truth, which so many of us, I think, in medicine face and few talk about, is that we're all sinful. And so we cannot earn our salvation through what we do. And in medicine, the toll is especially heavy because uh, we will try and strive to do the best we can for patients, but suture lines still fall apart We still, in the hours of working so hard throughout the night, still make mistakes. We miss lab values. And the the ramifications for our mistakes and our shortcomings are that people get sicker and they die. And so there's a tremendous sense of guilt that we all shoulder in medicine, 
when we don't understand the way to atonement, meaning Christ. And so I, I loved my work, but I saw it as a way for me to try to prove my right to exist. And in that struggle, um, I, I was very unhealthy. I crashed my car on the way to work at three o'clock in the morning one morning because I was so exhausted working 100 hour work weeks. Wow. And, and as this was, thanks be to God, there was no one else on the road. But a, a normal response for someone who had just been in a significant accident would be to get home and nurse your concussion, right? I hitched a ride with the tow truck driver into the hospital and then proceeded to work. Wow. <laughs> and my husband was out of town, so I had no way to get back home because I lived outside of Boston at the time. So I crashed on a friend's couch for the week in her apartment and, and just went about my, my work, which was not only stupid because it endangered the people in my care because I was working with a concussion, you know, but just showed how desperate I was that I was so tied to my work to define me. Um, and then on top of that, just there's this terrible grief that comes from realizing that even though you work your best, you still fail. I can remember the first time in medical school when I realized that I'd made a bad mistake and I'd misdiagnosed a patient who had um, peritonitis. So he had a very bad infection in his belly. And I didn't realize it until months later when I was on a surgical rotation and was learning those signs. But I, I realized, oh my goodness, I missed this. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And you know, what happened to him? And that that kind of guilt, you can't assuage it with words because it's just wrapped up in sin. And I've witnessed it in so many others where they'll they'll have a, a, an acute case come in and someone who's bleeding after multiple injuries and they rush them to the operating room and there's a bad outcome and you ask yourself, what did I do? Maybe if I'd done, a, done something differently, maybe if I'd gotten a different operating room table or called for blood earlier. And it haunts you and you and the, the, the names of the people that you failed to save just linger with you and keep you up at night. And so I was incredibly unhealthy, saw my my um, job as my identity and also was riddled with guilt that never left me. Um, and so while I was successful and loved what I was doing, it, it also was a source of tremendous grief and remorse. I want to get to your book because it's clear that grace, and you call your book Glimmers of Grace, is going to play into this. But what were those next steps in your journey that helped you come to grips with grace and move beyond just kind of this paralysis of working 100 hours a week, mm -hmm. um, motivated a lot by the things you described? Yeah. So I actually struggled mightily with the problem of suffering. And, you know, I think about Job very often. I mean, not Job, um, Jonah, when he was so defiant and running away from God, even though God was so merciful, just running away because he didn't want to give mercy to his enemies. And it was only when he was brought it to his lowest in the belly of the fish that he finally looked upward and prayed. And I can see a mirror and a parallel of that with God's work in my own life. I was working in the emergency department during my training. And um, my job was to triage everything that came into the emergency department, department in a 24-hour period that had the potential to need surgery. So it ran the gamut from toe abscesses on up to ruptured aortic aneurysms. It was my job to see those patients and stabilize them initially. And I had one harrowing night when just the depth of human depravity struck me cold. Hmm. Um, where I had 
one gentleman who came in in his 20s who had been bludgeoned nearly to death with a baseball bat in his sleep. And his wife had died in the assault, and his four-year-old son had watched the whole thing. And so he came in bleeding into his brain, and I was trying to stabilize him long enough to get him to the operating room with the neurosurgeons. And I was struggling to focus as I was working because all I could think about was this poor four-year-old kid who just witnessed his parents be beaten to death. And I kept thinking, what kind of life is this poor child going to have? And then while I was doing that, a a 15-year-old boy was brought in by paramedics on a stretcher after having been stabbed in the chest. And he had lost his pulse in the field as they were bringing him in. So they were doing chest compressions as they wheeled him into the emergency room. And so I had to leave what I was doing. And in one of these, in this kind of a situation, normally we like to do surgery in very controlled settings in the operating room. But in this case, where it literally is on the verge of death, we actually will open the chest right there in the trauma bay. Um, to try it. It's a last ditch effort to save life. So I did that and explored his chest and found a hole in his aorta. And this poor 14 year old kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, his whole blood volume had spilled into his chest. And I stumbled back from the stretcher, realizing that we couldn't save him, wow. uh, feeling numb, then had to change my scrubs, which were covered in blood, and go talk to his family. And huh. The story that I know, the story that they gave me was that he was from Guatemala and the horrible, cruel irony was they brought him to the United States to give him a better life. Wow. And this is this is the result. So as I'm I'm reeling from these two incidents right on top of each other, my trauma pager goes off again. And this time it's another fifteen year old kid. And this time he was shot in the head. And so while we and it was the the tenor in the room was so different from the prior two cases because as we brought him in, we just had to look at his eyes and his pupils were fixed and dilated, which told us that he had suffered from brain death. So the bullet had traversed his brain and his heart was still beating because we were had him on a ventilator to give him oxygen, but otherwise he was brain dead. And and it was one of those scenarios, what can you do? What good can you do in this situation? And so the only thing I could think of, knowing that we couldn't help him, we couldn't save him, uh, was to just suture the head wound closed and clean him up so that when his family came in, at least he would look something like what, like the boy that they cherished, you know. And as I was working, uh, some ill-informed staff member brought his mother into the room in the middle of my work when his, his head was still haloed in blood and I apologize for the graphicness, but I still had I had brain matter on my hands. And oh, she comes gosh. in and she just howls and right. falls to the floor, you know, and and I just tugged my gloves off and ran from the room and sobbed. And I still had to then work eight more hours. <laughs> um, and this is the reality, you know, this is just the reality of, of what it is. But all I kept thinking over and over for the rest of the night was, you know, my, and my, my concept of God before then had been very flimsy and just sentimental, as I alluded to before. But I kept thinking, how could all of the assailants in these cases look at someone else and see no worth and, and look at a young kid and just take life in that way? That just, to me, seemed the root of evil. And then so the next question in my mind is, if God is good and if he exists, how could he allow this? You know, and, and it just cut me to my core. And so the next day, 
when I should have gone home and slept because uh, I'd been up for 30 hours, I instead, I was so desperate to try to cling to something good that I drove two hours west of Boston through the Berkshire Mountains. And it was one of those beautiful days uh, in October in New England when just everything is set afire with beautiful color. Uh, and I stopped at a, a bridge on the Connecticut River. And I stood out in the midst of this gorgeous day where you just see fingerprints of God's love all around you and his creation, right? Uh, and I tried to pray. But because I didn't know the Lord, because I'd never read the Bible and didn't know scripture and had nothing to lean into that was true, I, I couldn't find the words. And I couldn't find any answers to my questions. And so I left that bridge deciding that because I couldn't discern any answers, it must be that God didn't exist. Um, so I spent the next year uh, in a severe depression, agnostic, going about work, but not really thriving, just existing, and struggled with suicidal ideation. I repeatedly um, would think on a daily basis on my way home from work about turning down Route 2 and driving out to that bridge and just throwing myself off the railing because without God, without goodness, what was the point of life? Um, so that was a very, very dark time. And it was in the setting of that despondency where I had nowhere else to go that the Lord then drew me back to himself uh, because it was a year later and I was working in the ICU and I had this gentleman that I was caring for who was just a very sad case where he'd undergone a surgery and then after the surgery had an event where his heart stopped and he required CPR for a full 25 minutes, which means that he went for a very long period without blood flow to his brain. And while we were able to then restart his heart, he had severe brain injury as a result from the lack of oxygen. And the prognosis was very poor. He'd, this episode had happened weeks ago. He'd made no progress. The neurologist looking at his imaging and the fact that he was older as well said, you know, he's the most that he will recover is to open his eyes and track objects, but not to interact with loved ones ever again in any meaningful way. And his family was just so dedicated and was by his side every day and would ask when I came in the room and they were so eager and say, Dr. Butler, do you see any improvement? You know, and it just broke my heart every time because no, no, we didn't. And we didn't think he would improve. But then this one day I heard from across the ICU something you don't usually hear in the ICU, which was his wife belting out 80s tunes at the top of her lungs, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which drew my attention. <laughs> and I walk in the room and she had, had had hung a cross about the size of an avocado from above his bed. And she was wearing one herself. And she says to me, Dr. Butler, I was just praying and praying last night. And I woke up this morning and God told me everything's going to be okay. And I looked at her and I just felt such compassion for her, but also pity because I thought, number one, the God to whom she's praying, I didn't think he existed. And number two, I did not think it was going to be fine for him as much as I wanted to believe that for her. So, you know, so I just said, I hope so. And then the next day, his family called me to the bedside really excited because they said that they had shouted his name and had asked him to move his toe and he did. And I thought, 
this is probably just a reflex because this happens often. The spinal cord will still be intact even if the brain itself is really injured and you'll see reflexive movements. And they said, no, that's not what it was. Watch. So they shattered his name and sure enough, he moved his toe. I shattered his name. He did nothing for me. <laughs> he was probably <laughs> doing that on purpose. But, but to make a long story short, uh, the next day he opened his eyes and tracked to their voice. And the day after that, he started squeezing his hand to their command. And over the next couple of weeks, this gentleman whom by all our understanding of prognosis and the normal course of recovery after this kind of brain injury, he made a full recovery. Um, being able to talk, joking about putting filet mignon through his feeding tube. It was, it was remarkable. And, you know, we in, in medicine will look at each other and say we're, we're overjoyed, but we consider it an outlier saying, oh, well, you know, it's just one of those cases that just defied the odds. But I couldn't ignore the fact that this was in response to prayer, that it was the Lord showing in the midst of giving this wonderful gift to this family, also alerting me to the truth that there is a power at work so far beyond our understanding of any protocol or physiology or mechanism that we think we've elucidated in medicine. And so after that point, I started to seek. And I'm ashamed to say that even though I'd seen this healing happen in Jesus's name, I looked to other religions because as a nominal Christian, I thought I knew Christianity. Uh, and I, I studied the Quran. I studied the Bhagavad Gita. I looked into Buddhism. And throughout all of it, I just saw this, this mandate that we had to earn our salvation somehow. And that to me seemed impossible because I had seen so much calamity in the emergency room and had seen that no matter what walk of life you came from, you came through those double doors at some point with some severe illness or injury. And I said, no, there's, I couldn't call it sin because I had no idea or no concept of theology at the time, but that's what I saw. And I said, I, if we have to earn <laughs> our own way to heaven, we're doomed. <laughs> it's just not possible. And then my husband encouraged me uh, on, to read the Gospels and the Book of Romans. And it was being, I was so awestruck that the God who'd created the universe and molded the seas and the mountains so loved us that he would send his son for us. You know, and then I came to Romans uh, chapter five and I stopped cold at verses three to eight because Paul talks about the fact that through Christ, we rejoice in the hope we have, but we also can rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings don't eliminate the hope we have in Christ. And in fact, the cross lends meaning to them because Jesus suffered too. And so even though we might not in the moment understand why calamities happen, and we may never, this side of heaven, understand, it's not because God doesn't love us. Um, and so through trials and, and a lot of darkness, God brought me back to himself by his mercy. Katie, I love hearing that you're examining different religions, and it was just reading the scriptures that made God real to you. I'm an apologist. I like to defend the faith in one of the most popular blogs <laughs> that I wrote that every year people just find it on Google is like the top five books to give a non-Christian. Mm -hmm. And the number one book is just the Gospel of John. Yes, so there's yes. something about encountering God's word. Now, I know the skeptic is going to be hearing this right now and say, okay, that person was healed by a miracle. 
But what about all the times God doesn't heal? What about all the people in probably most cases where he doesn't? If miracles counts for God, doesn't the lack of miracles count against him? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's it's easy also to have those kinds of questions, even when you're struggling with illness in the hospital. And I think one of the main reasons I wrote the book was because I'd seen and witnessed so many just hard, anguishing situations that drive us to our knees, whether we're enduring ordeals as a patient or as a loved one or as a healthcare professional, where we just struggle and say, God, where are you in this? You know, but I think what we know from the Bible is that God's thoughts are not ours. His ways are not ours. And the ultimate good is actually not our health and our longevity and our healing, you know, and when you look at miracles throughout the Bible, he doesn't perform miracles. It's a point of mercy and grace. Yes. But he's also often doing it to declare who he is and to reveal to others who he is, you know? And so healing is not actually the ultimate good. The most important thing in the Bible is our relationship to him. And I love how the Westminster catechism phrases it, you know, that the chief end of man is to, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And sometimes our sufferings actually allow us to do that. Um, and, and God is at work in them in ways that we maybe cannot perceive. And I love, I love John 11, especially Sean, since you mentioned John, because I think it just shows this so beautifully where um, with Lazarus being ill, Lazarus being someone that Jesus loved and he could have performed a miracle to heal him. But when he receives word of Lazarus dying, of Lazarus being so sick, he delays. And he says, I'm, I'm glad I was not there when he dies so that the glory of God could be revealed to you. And that must have been incredibly confusing for the disciples and for Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. You know, why, why didn't you come? You know, if you'd been here, you could have saved him. But it's because there was something far greater planned that he was going to actually raise Lazarus from the dead. And that in doing so, in the presence of all the mourners there, it would then cause them to believe, to place their faith, their trust in Christ and to draw nearer to God. You know, so I, I think it's understanding that just because he can perform a miracle, it may not be within his will to do so. And and I think there are a lot of examples throughout the Bible showing that um, when suffering happens, oftentimes he's at work through it. You think about Uh, Genesis 50 verse 20 I love when Joseph talks to his brothers and says after he'd been thrown in the well and sold into slavery and they did all this evil to him and he says you meant this for evil but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives because through that God brought Joseph to Egypt and then provided for his chosen people during the famine you know so you see from Romans 8 28 that God works through all things for the good of those who love him yeah, Katie, we often tell patients and their families that God's going to work a great miracle, mm. uh, and prob- probably a bigger one than you expect, but the chances mm-hmm. are it's going to be on the other side of eternity and not this one. Right, um, right, right. And to just to be, be careful that we don't put too much expectation into what goes on under the sun on this mm-hmm. side of eternity, mm-hmm. as, opp- as opposed to the grand miracle when all of our diseases will be healed. Exactly. Um, Amen. Amen. You know, one of the things I, I learned, I spent a lot of years in bioethics and did consults at the bedside. And one of the things I learned early on is that I didn't have the stomach for the neonatal intensive care unit, mm-hmm. uh, p- partly because my wife and I had had, had some difficulty with, it, with infertility. 
uh, and mm. had, you know, were so desirous to have children, and then to to see some of these you know, basically train wrecks in the in the neonatal intensive care unit, I realized I, you know, that's probably just an area that I need to stay out of. Yeah. But you saw yeah. you saw that as a place where. You know, you saw these these great glimmers of God's love and grace. Mm-hmm. How how did that work? Because that that seems to me to be some of the some of the most desperate places mm-hmm. uh, in med, in the medical setting. So where how did those glimmers of grace come out? There? Yeah, you know, I I can resonate with uh, what you're saying resonates with me um, because there's this sense when you go into a a NICU that everything mm. is just turned inside out that it's all backward. You know, that you'll have mothers that are there beside these incubators that are, you know, look like machines in the middle of the room holding this tiny baby. And they've for nine months pined to hold that little one. And now they can't even touch him or her. And there's just a sense of loss. And like, what do I do in this scenario? You know, and uh, and in some ways, I, I agree with you completely, Scott, that the neonatal ICU shows us um, the ugliest sides of sin, that it corrupts what is by nature beautiful and good, you know, innocent life and new life. Um, it was it was the tenderness that I saw between parents and these little babies. And there was one image in particular uh, that really just struck with me. And I was there as a a resident who was rotating through pediatric surgery. So my job was to go and see these little babies and poke them with a glove finger feeling for a hernia and for a tender belly and that kind of thing. And I came into the the room of one patient that we've been following and this little premature baby who was tiny, um, his dad was a bricklayer. And so a huge hulking big man. And you know that you, you get a sense for the dynamics between parents uh, in these situations, too, some of the fathers are really uncomfortable, and you can see they're at the back of the room just unsure what to do. He was one of these ones who very clearly, his aim and his role, as he saw, was to support his family through this catastrophe. And so he was always standing with his arm around his wife whenever we came in the room as if to shield her from any further hurt. And I was just so struck one day because I came into the room, and this giant six-and-a-half-foot-tall, 250-pound man was like squatting <laughs> near the incubator with his single finger inside the incubator. And his premature little baby son had his entire fist wrapped around his single finger. And it looked like the most uncomfortable position. I said, can I get you a chair? <laughs> you know? um, but what was just so touching and brought me to tears at the moment is he was saying like, he's, you know, he was talking about his baby and he's like, he's so strong. And he looked at him and he says, you just keep holding on to me, little guy, because I'm never letting go of you. And I just thought about this, this infant who, from the moment he left the womb, was in danger and was dependent and flailing. And I thought, what a picture of our father in heaven caring for us, that we're lost and we can't help ourselves and we're so fragile and he reaches down and holds on to us through Christ and won't let us go. You know, and so there are these moments that you see that God is is showing us mercy through love that we show one another, love for neighbor um, in these situations. You know, and so while there's harrowing sorrow very often, you also get to see these glimpses 
where you can praise God and say, thank you, Lord, for reminding us of who you are. Katie, I've got a somewhat of a practical question for you. As you know, as well as anybody, that when serious illness or accident hits, a person feels lost, despair, hopeless. Mm-hmm. Like the young man you describe in your book, uh, you treated after a skiing accident. Mm-hmm. I think as Christians, we often feel like we've got to give a verse. We've got to say, you know, quote Romans eight twenty eight. But that's not yeah. always the most helpful response. Having dealt with so many people in that situation, what just practical and biblical advice would you give us to help mm-hmm. people who are hurting in that way? Absolutely. Um, I think, first of all, and, and I love the point you just made, Sean, about we need to sometimes give a verse. I think that there are definitely times for that, and we should have those verses in our own mind. But we need to be sensitive that not everyone is going to be open to hearing that at every time and to just wait for the right moment. And I think it's critical, I think, during these kinds of catastrophes and ordeals that the body of Christ be present and come alongside those who are hurting. I I really think this is crucial because in the hospital, we are cut off from our usual spiritual disciplines. And the truths that we proclaim in church every Sunday become really hard to grasp when we're in pain and when we're on medicine that fogs our thinking, and when the routines we have of reading the Bible or praying or doing our devotions or singing hymns are replaced instead with monitors and vital signs checks and needle sticks and more procedures, and it can really grind you down. And so fellowship with the other believers who love us, I think is really crucial and can be life-giving. Um, But to your point, I would say that the most important thing, first and foremost, is just to be a minister, just to remember the ministry of presence and to be present for the one you're with without giving advice that's unsolicited. Um, Because people will be handling these crises in different ways. Um, Some will welcome praying with them and praying for them and talking about the Bible. Others just want to have someone there to sit with them and watch TV. Uh, Others will want to talk about things outside the hospital to connect with what matters to them beyond the confines of the hospital room, you know? And so I think the more that we are present and we listen and recognize them as unique image bearers of God, whom we're called to love, I think is first and foremost, uh, the most important thing. And then yes, of course, praying with them, offer to pray for them while they're there. Um, And really just be a a presence, be slow to give advice, quick to give encouragement, but really focusing on that individual as the unique image bearer of God that they are. Katie, one final question for you. This this, this book is so full of insight. It's so helpful. But uh, part of what you describe is you've had the privilege of ushering people right up to the doorstep of eternity, Uh, like, like with your friend David that you described in repeated places throughout the book, but in particular, I think uh, you know how you how you cared for him right up until he went to meet the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like, and particularly how it impacted your kids. Oh gosh, yeah, um, you know, and so having witnessed um, death on uh, many many occasions in many settings, I, I first want to say that. I don't ever think that death should be romanticized, uh, that it remains a horror, whatever setting it's in. Uh, And I think sometimes as we're fighting 
physician-assisted suicide and the right to die movement, people tend to glamorize it or use euphemisms for it. Death was never our original plan. And it's always awful um, to have somebody who's, you know, one moment breathing and, and dreaming and loving and the next moment completely still. It's always unsettling. Um, but having seen it in a lot of different contexts, I think when it is most gracious is when it's tied to our reality of who we are in Christ, um, which I think is really important for we as Christians to consider and to be aware of because and we've talked about end-of-life care in the past, but those who have high religious coping are less likely to seek hospice services, more likely to seek aggressive care at the end of life, and more likely to die in an ICU. So more likely to be on a ventilator, having very aggressive things done to them, and not able to be in prayer or be with brothers and sisters who can pray over them and considering who they are in Christ, etc. And I, and I contrast that with my friend David, whom you mentioned, who was just such a dear brother in Christ, who um, we had developed a friendship with for many years. His story is that he had struggled with drug abuse and um, was homeless in the streets of New York City for a decade and came to Christ when a good Samaritan, just a stranger, saw him trying to take his own life intervened, brought him to the hospital, and told him about the good news of the gospel during the process. And so he was just overflowing with gratitude for God's work in his life. Um, and he struggled with emphysema, which ultimately claimed his life. And my family and I had the privilege of walking with him through those last days. And I make this point about tying your last days to who we are in Christ, because I saw in him such a gift where he had been headed for a highly medicalized death like I just described um, because he was kind of shuttled from hospital to rehab and back again. Uh, physicians weren't really being clear with him about what was going on and no goals of care discussions or advanced directives discussions were being had. Uh, and I was very concerned that he was going to die alone, cut off from the people he loved, which was his biggest fear. But God was very gracious, and in his final week of life, um, he was able to get connected with palliative care and went into hospice. And the day, last day that he was conscious, he spent it working on a letter that he wanted read at his funeral. And in that letter, he pointed all of those in hearing to Romans 8, 38 to 39, that nothing, not life or death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he blessed others at the end of his life. And then he fell unconscious the next day and our family um, was able to be at his side with our pastor and we sang hymns and we read his favorite Psalms and we reminisced and held his hand. And my kids um, had the honor of being there with him too because they had loved him so much and we actually were there you know, and it amazes me the wisdom of children sometimes. We can get so caught up in our own priorities in our lives that my my son, when I had had a conversation with him about how the fact the fact that Mr. David was dying, uh, he said, "Can we please visit him every day before he dies?" And I said, "Yeah, honey." You know, so we were by his side because of the heart 
that a little seven-year-old boy had for this man who taught him about Jesus. Um, so it was, it was uh, just such a, a point of, of grace and a gift, even though death is horrible and even though we miss him. But just so thankful to God for the gift of the peace of having his word proclaimed with him and him being able to reflect upon God's love for him while he still could in his last moments. Katie, thank you. That, that's just, that is the sweetest account of, of how this gentleman who was just falling apart physically was able to be so spiritually together and impact your family like he has. This, this has been so helpful, so fun to be, just to have you back on with us. Uh, your experience as a trauma surgeon and the, I, w- I, w- I think glimmers might be a bit of an understatement because I think, <laughs> I think there were some pretty, pretty bright lights of gray shi- shining <laughs> through in a, in a lot of these accounts. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I want to commend to our listeners your latest book called Glimmers of Grace, A Doctor's Reflection on Faith, Suffering, and the Goodness of God. Just a terrific book. Uh, and Katie, we want to so appreciative for you coming on with us, and uh, want to wish you all the best as you continue to homeschool your kids uh, and continue to raise up the the next generation of folks who will follow Christ faithfully. So, thanks so much for coming on with us. Uh, it's been a delight to have you back on again. Well, thank you so much. God bless. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including those in our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Be sure to visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more about those. If you, if you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Katie Butler, give us a rating on your podcast app and please share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.